Smoke's New Year, new theme music, kind of. Welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. My name is Greg Hunter, a leading part-time comics commentator of the Upper Midwest, and on this podcast, we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist with each installment. Our guest this time is Rob Kirby. Rob is a cartoonist, editor, and critic, one of TCJ's own. In fact, Rob's known for his former strip Curbside and the attendant collections, along with anthologies like Queer, What's Your Sign, Girl, and The Shirley Jackson Project. He's also got his first full-length graphic memoir on the way, Marry Me a Little. We talk about that and a whole lot more. Now, in a departure for this podcast, we recorded the interview with Rob in front of a live audience. What you're hearing was also programming at the pre-launch celebration for the Comic Book Library of Minneapolis, a comics lending library and a projected community hub for readers and cartoonists. It's the brainchild of Aaron King. You may know Aaron from Comics Cartography, and it'll be launching this year, 2018. For more information, please go to cblompls.wordpress.com. I went there right now. This place will have seven Eleanor Davis comics and counting, and that's just one example. If you're in New York or California listening to this and you think that information all sounds way too regional, well, specificity is the soul of narrative, and now you look foolish. And hey, if you're new to the podcast, maybe you started with this, maybe you started with the Emil Ferris episode, you can download every episode to date on iTunes. Do you go there and search comic book decalogue? No, <laughs> you'd think so. But in fact, you search TCJ Talkies and you can listen to more of this show and find classic episodes of Talkies as well. Heck, it doesn't cost a thing. And now, here's 10 questions with Rob Kirby. It'll be like a nature recording on yeah, where you can yeah. play it to fall asleep at night. Yeah, yeah. ASMR. <laughs> Alright, well this uh, I believe is the Extroverts pre-opening yes. of the Minneapolis Comics Library Did I get it right word, word by word there? About? Okay, cool. Uh, more specifically is a live recording of the podcast Comic Book Decalogue a podcast courtesy of TCJ.com In this podcast we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist every time and in the spirit of the kind of community making Aaron has put forward with his comics library, we're going to ask for some audience participation throughout this recording. So you've got the 10 questions in front of you. Uh, every time we move on to a new one, I would appreciate it if you in the crowd would ask <laughs> the question along with me. <laughs> and if you don't, I will see it because there are not many people, <laughs> not many people in this room. Uh, all right, the very first one, uh, this, uh, what am I saying? Our guest is Rob Kirby. Rob is a comics cartoonist, editor, critic. As of late, uh, you curated the anthologies, the Shirley Jackson Project, What's Your Sign, Queer. You've got a graphic novel, or graphic memoir, right? On the way. Yeah. Marry Me a Little? Is that yeah, Marry Me a Little, yeah. Coming soon? We'll talk about that, maybe. Let's see. Yeah. All right, now, question number one. Rob, what's the last comic you finished reading? I just finished... Sex Fantasy by Sophia Foster Domino, published by Koyama Press. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the funniest thing. I was not into it at first. Um, it starts with these short kind of zine things. I, you know, I was loving the drawing, but I, couldn't, I wasn't connecting with it. 
And then when she got to the longer stories in the second or the, the last two thirds of the book, I guess, I was way into it and I highly recommend this book. It's very wonderful. And she has this really intentional, simple style that's just incredibly appealing. Um, highly recommend it. Now, we mentioned a second ago your work on it's a book length comics product, correct? With Marry Me a Little. Yes, no, yes and it, it is, yeah. And it will be it will be in I'm kind of taking the cue from my friend Mari Naomi, uh, her book Turning Japanese. It's a lot of little short stories that all build up to one whole. So Marry Me a Little, I'm finding the idea of writing a hundred or I'm not really sure how long the book will be, but I'm finding the idea of writing one long story for 100 and 150 pages completely horrifying to mm-hmm. me. So, and, and I think I think doing it in a bunch of short stories that cumulatively add up to one large narrative is just my jam. That's the way I'm going to go. Sure. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you sort of anticipated my question there, um, if, if and when in your life as a cartoonist you found a comfort zone with respect to... You know, the length of the pieces yeah, well, that you draw. Well, for me, I don't know how many of you are of a certain age, but I first started in Minneapolis. I, I My first real professional comics thing was a comic strip called Curbside that ran uh, first in Equal Time newspaper. It was an LGBTQ newspaper. It, I started running there in, there in 1991, and it ran... The strip ran... I, didn't stop until 2008. I, I syndicated. I, I ran in a number of mm-hmm. LGBTQ papers in the U.S. and Canada. Eventually, I told my my second book, Curbside Boys, from Cleus Press. It was published in 2002. That was my first real publisher book. It tells one long story, but it's all in biweekly installments, and it tells a, a bittersweet love story. I basically put all my 20-something love experiences into this kind of soap opera, mm-hmm. but with a 90s cool sensibility I like to think because I felt like a lot of LGBTQ comics before that I mean they were just of a different era you know they were from 70s and 80s cartoonists and I was a 90s cartoonist and thus yeah I was like I was like the next generation I guess and now I've I'm the old generation there's a whole new generation of people who come after me are there any details in that book uh, you look back on it and think, well, that is very 90s indeed. Some, oh. some period signifiers oh, that don't yeah. go down so easily. Yeah, totally. Um, one of my biggest influences, well, two of them were Alex and Bachelor and Eric Warner. And we were all, but you know, they were like two of the best strip art cartoonists in LGBTQ media. And they very much were recording everything as it went. You know, mm-hmm. like they, you know, you go back and read old Dykes to Watch Out Fours and old Ethan Green comics, and they're very much references to, you know, the gays in the military issue or Anita Hill, all that stuff. And I, I would I wasn't topical so much. I started off as an autobiographical biweekly queer cartoonist, which, you know, I still feel like I didn't really know how many people were doing that. But uh, eventually I went into fiction. But when I moved to New York, the the subtitle of the Curbside Boys book, and this was per the Cleus Press publisher, was Curbside Boys, the New York years, because that's I moved to New York 
And then I took over with this fictional character named Nathan and Drew, and, and I became a sideline character. I was very mm-hmm. much like a Greek chorus for Nathan, you know. But yeah, I put in all kinds of little things. There's there's the, the 90s films that, you know, you will see a poster for a Todd Haynes film, you know, like Safe in, in a movie theater when we went to the movies, or I talk about what, Smashing Pumpkins, or any, <laughs> any number of things that are very 90s indeed, so... Yeah, it's it's like it's reportage, but in a more subtle way, mm-hmm. I guess. All right, now you mentioned uh, Eric Horner a second ago, which brings me to our second question. Which this time you guys are going to say with me. Question oh. number two: <laughs> <laughs> What cartoon you just doesn't get enough praise? Why? It's funny, Greg, that you would say Eric Horner because. Okay, for, well, first of all, yeah, Eric Gordon definitely doesn't get enough praise. I mean, he's a really brilliant cartoonist, and he's also a pal of mine, too. So, you know, i got to stick, stick up for the pals. But it's funny, there's different levels of praise or different levels of recognition. Eric Werner is really well-known in more literary circles. Like, there's a book coming out, and he, he's going to be in this book with... Um, oh, God, who are some, some of these, like, really big literary novelist-type names... Um, and it's coming in, what's it called? Oh, I just saw it on Pan America. But anyway, you know, whereas like the, I don't think the comics journal crowd really knows him that well, you know? Mm-hmm. But then there's other cartoonists like, well, okay, let's take another one, Katie Frickas, who's in the Shirley Jackson Project. She just has a little feature, a little story in there based on Shirley's The Bird's Nest. But she is currently getting a lot of play. She's starting to have cartoons in The New Yorker. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always thought she was a really wonderful, scrawly, grotesque... She does really scrawly, grotesque stuff. I think she's really great. And, and I'm really happy to see her getting more and more venues that more people are going to see. But yeah, that's a tough one because there's so many... Like I said, there's so many levels of recognition. And I know with my reviewing, there are certain people I don't really want to review because I feel like they get all the press in the world in the comics world you mm-hmm. know so I, I like to go for more of the people who I think deserve or the people I have something to say something about who maybe aren't that much in the conversation sure such as Jesse Jacobs for example he's a really wonderful cartoonist I think he's as, every bit as good as Michael DeForge but I don't hear as much about him you know yeah he's great yeah alright and our third question question number three What's, What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Ooh, God, there's so many. <laughs> there's really so many, you know. Um, I will just go ahead and say, I'm going to have a, you know, a moment here and just tell you, like, I think they're amazing, brilliant cartoonists. I, they're just, it's just not my flavor. The Hernandez Brothers and Chris Ware, I just, I'm sorry, I just, I just... Not that into them, even though I'm strong, strong facial reactions. I really, I really respect. I've never been able to see the look on other people's faces when a person answers (laughs) questions. People yell at me about the brothers, the brothers a a lot. Um, Yeah, a lot of a lot of them told me. You know how, like, when you do an interview with TCJ, you get some books as a payment. You know, and I got everybody told me get the Love Bunglers. It's so amazing. It will you'll become a lifelong fan. Really good book. Really well done, but it just, it just, it's still, I think maybe I just feel their backlog of work is so daunting. I just, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was really beautifully done, but I just, I can't get excited about them. And I've heard other cartoonists tell sure. me that too, like, you know, they feel, 
guilty about it, but there's this kind of... Um, Cause, you know, in fairness to you, because that is a, a shameful opinion, but you do... <laughs> um, yeah. Like that book, Love Bunglers, does benefit, I think, from the weight of history within yeah, that series. Yeah. And, and I can see where it's incredible really moving and you know and, and the people who have read them all these years it's many of my dearest cartoonist friends love them to death and they really worship them and uh, and I will tell you to Chris Ware the Chris Ware question again he's really brilliant I, I think he should stop doing those those smartphone <laughs> the New Yorker yeah. covers he's just doing yeah that's a theme with him but I will say that, you know, when I was a, ju- a juror for the Ignatz Awards, I actually gave him my number one pick, his story, The Seeing Eye Dogs of Mars, um, the blind, or The Blind Sea. I, I, it, was, it was in Acne, number 19. It blew me away. And it, and it was my number one vote. And it got a nomination for the Ignatz Awards, and it highly deserved it. It may, it may have won, I don't remember. But I'm open to anything, you know. It just... Yeah, that's just something I don't connect with, but it's like Linda Berry once said, you know, maybe it's really wonderful curry, but you just don't particularly like curry. And question number four. This is a longer one, so we've got to rally, everybody. You can send one comic back in time to yourself at 414. What is that comic? Wow. Yeah, what would that be? That would be... I think of all the questions I've I never really thought about this one, even though I've listened to your podcast a lot. Um, I would say oh. <laughs> <laughs> it might have to be Linda something by Linda Berry or something by Alison Bechdel. Notice it's not like a guy. I'm a sensitive guy. I don't know. Those two really spoke to me in a certain way. Maybe it, maybe it would be like Linda Berry when she started doing those kind of traumatic child ones. and Yeah, I'll go with uh, the book Come Over, Come Over by Linda Berry. We'll just go with that. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the earliest comics touch points for you Oh, well, just everything. I mean, I, my parents, they really liked comics a lot. They loved Pogo. Uh, they were both New Yorker readers. So, and my dad always clipped any cartoon that made him laugh out loud, you know. So, I got a real education in in those great old New Yorker people like George Booth, and uh, who who did the, I think he's the one who did all the, they always had a goofy dog in in the background, even if it wasn't about a dog. Um, Yeah, all Lorenz and um, Charles Barsati. And when my dad died, I actually inherited that scrapbook. Um, and they're, they're really great. And yeah, so I grew up with comics and, and I kind of read everything. I, read, I went through my DC horror comics phase. I went through my Marvel superheroes. Mm-hmm. Charles Schultz was a huge early influence. Every, I would read Archie, uh, Harvey comics, any, anything that came, that came my way, I would do it. Yeah. Now, as a, a sensitive young Rob Kirby. What were what were the Marvel titles that that worked for you at least oh, at least temporarily? Oh definitely oh definitely like the Fantastic Four and Spider Man, you know, those were great because they the reason I like the Marvel superheroes and not the DC comics. Um, the DC superheroes just didn't have enough soap opera. They didn't have enough like backstory and continuation mm-hmm. to, to as far as I knew. Uh, Marvel superheroes were always worrying about, you know, their love relationships and 
Reed and Sue Richards from the Fantastic Four were always having problems in their marriage and stuff. And I just, I guess I just really relate to problems. I'm like, you know, I want characters to have problems and, and, and drama. I mean, it's just much more interesting to read, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just beating up. I mean, the fight scenes weren't nearly as interesting to me as like the marriage problems. Sure. And, uh, and, oh, and, and, you know, Ben, what, what the thing, you know, Ben Grimm, the thing. I mean, you know, he, he was ugly. You know, he had, he was covered with rocks, orange <laughs> rocks. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, you know, worrying about your skin or whatever and becoming incredibly self-conscious about every single thing in your life, you know, you kind of relate to that stuff. Question number five. What What's the change you'd, you'd like to see across the comics industry? <laughs> the comics industry. Okay. I don't really know how much of a part of the comics industry I am so much, but I guess I would go to monetize it. I think that cartoonists work too much for free, including myself. I mean, I've, I've actually, this year I stopped. I will no longer write for free. I will no longer do mm-hmm. reviews, etc., for free. So thank you, TC Jane, or War Feminist for paying people. But yeah, and that's the, that's the blanket thing I hear all, all along is it, across the board is, I, you know, I really worry about cartoonists too in this right-wing ice age we're living in right now with, their, with the attacks on um, basic safety net things such as health insurance, etc. Cartoonists, it's gonna it's gonna be a lot harder, I think, for cartoonists to just be a cartoonist. Now I have a day job and I've always about twenty years ago I just decided I'm just gonna always have a day job. I just don't have the wherewithal to try to make it in this industry on my own. You know, like and, and I worked for money, you know, my strip I, I, I was paid for it you know, by all these different venues that ran it, but it was never enough to actually live on. Well, I could probably have made a real poverty level existence had I moved to, you know, a small town in Ohio or something, but I was living in Manhattan, etc. So yeah, I would like to see cartoonists really think carefully about their situation and don't make the mistakes of I mean, when you're really young, you can do it, but when you're past 30, really think about maybe if it's not working and you're, and you're living desperately poor, maybe think about other ways to subsidize your cartooning, you know, and make that more of a second job, your cartooning. Let me ask That's you. me just being very parental <laughs> to these younger cartoonists. I worry about you all. <laughs> Let's, let's talk about curbside in that respect. You know, when you were doing that comic, you know, part of the labor you were doing, and let, let me know if you agree with this or not, is ensuring there's a space for queer cartoonists, for yeah. queer community within yeah. comics. Um, and I'm sure how deliberate that part of it is is, you know, different from person to person. But at, at the time, how political did you think of your comics as being? Well, I think, I think what I tried to do with my strip, and I think this is really different from other, what I see it with younger cartoonists, I was trying really hard to make it, to normalize it and make it as, I didn't really, my characters didn't talk about being gay, they just kind of were, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, they were, you know, occasionally sub- subversive, and when I got into the Nathan Drew story, it got, you know, there were times I got censored for being too sexy or sexual. I felt, I think I felt, I felt really my goal was to, again, make it as normal as possible without making them like in suburban. I mean, they were really, they were like living on the edge. They were not 
like, you know, middle class. They were not upper middle class characters at all, believe me. They lived in crappy apartments, and, and one of them was in a band, another was trying to be a writer. But I see the new generation of queer cartoonists, they're very much, they talk about being queer. That's the first thing you see. If you look at their Twitter. Yeah, handles. exactly. Yeah, they, they come right out and say it. The woman who won, who won the Ignatz this year for uh, Best Anthology. And thank you, Ignatz Awards, for finally separating anthology from collection. They're two totally different things. It's high time. She's flat out, you know, she is out and proud and she's, she's a woman of color and she publishes queer people of color and, and I, I love it. I love that the new generation is super political about it. I think maybe I was a little wussy about it. I don't know. I was just trying to, I think I remember trying to get into the more, the alt papers, you know, the ones that like were queer enough, you know, that, that every now and again would publish queer comics. And eventually it did get into the New York press, which was a big venue for alt cartoonists back in the late nineties. Um, and they were trying to blast the village voice out of existence. Mm-hmm. So they, they hired Allison and I, you know, they syndicated us for a little while for about a year. They, yeah, they were, they were weird though, but they paid really well <laughs> to strip, you know, and back then, you know, 50 bucks per, the more papers it ran you, the more money you made mm-hmm. because you'd get, you know, some of the little papers in Spokane would pay $10 and, you know, so again, I've lost track of what I was talking about. I'm going back in time here, guys. I'm getting very stuck. <laughs> Did I answer that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, these, these are okay. always jumping off points. Okay. <laughs> you talked a bit about having a day job and having contingencies, but let's ask you uh, all the same. Question number six. What's, What's the closest, closest you've come to quitting, quitting cartooning? Oh, yeah. Not really. I don't think I ever will quit. I think I definitely have found that it's important to take a break. Um, and when I finished Curbside, I stopped doing it. You know, remember, remember I had been doing that for 17 years every other week with only a few breaks here and there. My God, when I quit, it was awesome. You know, it was just like, I had time I never knew. I had suddenly had all this time and I had to, you know, re-wet and rework and figure out what I wanted to do. And I think, I think one of the reasons I quit the comic too is I was really tired of doing these basically six panel, mm-hmm. um, half, what's it, half column? It really was, uh, it, it wasn't really that good for my art work, I think. I was always cramming. And I'm a wordy cartoonist, or I can be. And that's like, I, I, said, I said this at that Queers in Comics conference on one of the panels I was in. That's like the Linda Berry influence. which And, you know, I love Linda Berry, but that was not such a good influence for me. I mean, I, I go back and read my Cleas Press book, and, and I really want to edit it out uh, a lot. I, I kind of overwrote a lot. And so when I quit that, and I started doing an anthology called Three. It was after my Boy Trouble anthology, that was a queer boy anthology, that resulted in a couple of books with Green Candy Press. Three was like just going to be, it's just three comics per issue. It was a, I did it as a glossy all-color comic, like a zine. The first issue was me and Eric Warner and Joey Allison Sayers, and it got nominated for an Ignatz, and Eric's story was nominated for an Ignatz for Best Story, and it was eventually published in Best American Comics, too. So, 
Um, I did three issues of three. Yeah, and it was just freeing for me. Um, I didn't want to quit comics, but I just it was it was really good to take a break. And since quitting that strip, I've never run out of things I want to do. And doing the Shirley Jackson project and doing What's Your Sign Girl were really like little passion projects of mine. I really like to work with the with other cartoonists a lot. And now that I'm done all of that and I'm ready going through a new phase of I want to work on my own, do my own thing, do one magnum opus sort of kind of, but I really shouldn't think of it that way. <laughs> That's probably a really good way to like, mess yourself up. <laughs> With the loss of those alt-weeklies, but uh, you know, the rise of things like uh, Patreon and Kickstarter, would you be willing to generalize about whether things are better or worse now in terms of people mm. being paid? Uh, yeah, well, you know, Tanika, the woman I talked about who did the, who just won the Ignats, She's, she was on my, I did an anthology panel at Queers and Comics in San Francisco last, or last May, was it? That was really cool. That was the second one, the second iteration of it. The first one was two years ago in New York. And people like her really give me hope because she's super uh, professional about it. And everybody gets paid and they get paid really well. And I, I just think that creators are just demanding that. I, I think maybe it's the student loan bills that they're getting uh, when they graduate from, you know, the cartoon college and, uh, and, and you know, CCS and CCA, it's it just, there's just been a real shift, I think. But I, and people wondered about Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo and how sustaining they would be. And it seems to be working for people, you know, um, I get Kickstarter and Indiegogo fatigue, but I, you know, I take, you know, but I, when there's projects that I really want to help mm -hmm. out, I, I, I do contribute, you know. When I can. All right, let's ask uh, question number seven then. <laughs> What's the best advice you've heard about making comics? I'm just going to sample the audio from this yeah, recording. Make By the way, I should have had you guys sign releases or something. <laughs> make it good, like, yeah, you could use that in every. Uh, <laughs> oh, the best advice. Yeah, you know, it's funny, nothing's really coming out, but let me talk for a minute. <laughs> because I really love reading interviews and listening to interviews with artists of all sorts, the cartoonists, musicians, writers, whatever, you know, everybody has their, you know, there's no correct way to do anything, but, you know, like writers will tell you, well, you've got to write and you've got to read and they're, and they're right. With comics, that's a real toughie because I've read so many. Okay. Uh, I interviewed Mari Naomi for the Comics Journal uh, last year and this has stuck with me. In fact, I, it was kind of the, in the title of the interview. And she said, I want everything to mean something. Mm -hmm. So I am trying really hard these days to make everything intentional and make what's in every panel, even if it's cluttered, be there because I want it to be there. So, yeah. Thank you, Smarty. That's, that's, that's what I'll go with. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question to that, then. Have you, <laughs> have you found uh, panel by panel that, with you know, that, that method in mind, there's more in the panels or less? In terms of the execution, are you, you know, self-editing more or adding more well, page by page? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I'm working on this really quick thing. I really turned when I started today, and I have to turn it in tomorrow by tomorrow night for Penn. They're doing a Thanksgiving feature for writers and, you know, about like living again in this right-wing ice age, like what are you thankful for? And so I thought I would do a little 
it's literally two panels, but it's one of my wordy panels. You know, it's like it's not a lot of a lot of stuff in it because I have feelings, many feelings about what the era we are living in. Um, and I, but I tried really hard. I'm trying to show, not tell. That's probably you know that's probably the number one advice <laughs> for cartoonists ever: show, don't tell. Because I have been guilty many times <laughs> of telling and not showing. Because you know it's a visual medium. Yeah, I'm trying really hard to pare it down, and I do. Sometimes I do silent stories too, with no dialogue whatsoever, and those are really difficult. I did a mini comic called King for a Day. It was 24 pages. You know, I know some people. I know a cartoonist literally said 24 pages isn't that many, that many pages, and I told the guy I said that 24 pages for me is epic. <laughs> and it took me a year to do it, and there's no dialogue, and it actually I think it holds up pretty well. I find reviewing comics really helps me with my own comics because you have to go deeper. I just did a re capsule reviews of the Kush comics, uh, a bunch of the Kush minis, and I find that the more, the deeper I read them, because I uh, very often I don't get what the artist is doing. I have to read on the first try and I have to keep going and keep going. And I see how intentional they, how they parcel out in, uh, visual information or textual information. And again, I have to go deeper, and it really, it all goes into the, my own personal hopper, and I think it really does help me with my own creating, and, and also with editing, I'm able to, I think I've become a better editor with some of my artists when I do anthologies. So yeah, that's, I try to pare it down, that's ultimately what I try to do. Make everything mean something, like Mari said. It's from, you know, for me, you know, again, it, I feel like reviewing comics helps me with my own work. And I was going to ask you how, you're not a cartoonist, but like, how good do you think reviewing comics influences your writing? Like, what what challenges and what challenges do you feel like you've overcome or stepped up to in reviewing comics and reviewing things? That's a good question. I mean, uh... See, it's not so easy. It's no, it's not. <laughs> I'm exposed every time someone turns it back around. I mean, you want any review to be worth someone's time? I think any artist could be forgiven for not appreciating a bad review. Or this is this is a better answer. Yeah, any artist could be forgiven uh, for not appreciating a bad review. But even the negative reviews, I write. I would say I want it to be clear that I had enough respect for the work to take the time to read it very, very carefully. And to, you know, proceed in good faith with an analysis or, or with a recommendation to a reader. Yeah. I feel like you're a really tough, you can be a tough reviewer, but you're always really fair. And there was that one book you reviewed about, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, was the one that took place in Iceland, or the, the, the character went to Iceland. And it was, it was a pretty, it was pretty negative, but, you know, I thought it was just so well-reasoned and so well-written. You know, and I'm too much of a wuss. I'm a cartoonist, and I, I, you know, I go to shows with these people, and I just, you know, I just try to review the things that I like, and, and you know, and I'm also really a part-time reviewer. I only review up to a, maybe a dozen things a year. If you know, this year was kind of a big year because I'm procrastinating and trying not to do my own stuff. So yeah, let's let's review books instead of drawing my own work. But um, uh, I, I feel comfortable saying this in front of people. I'm sure like uh, as bodiless audio, it's going to be the most obnoxious sounding thing anyone's ever heard. But like, especially when it's uh, like two comics journal writers talking about the comics journal. But there's, uh, I think a lot, even in the internet era or, or especially in the internet era, a lot of the comics press as enthusiast press, a lot of the major comic sites are uh, 
the their journalism and their criticism both sort of serve as you know reiterations of press releases a lot of the time yeah you know, again again talking about the standards or, or, or the ethos of the comic strong sounds so embarrassing coming out of my mouth because uh, they've been wrong plenty of times also but to uh, you know appreciate the the time and the place for an enthusiast press but to want to do something else and, and take comics seriously I think is yeah. important yeah we'll, we'll, we'll put a cap on the reviewing top there okay. <laughs> it's um, getting it's, uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> all right um, and and uh, question number eight What's the worst decision you made as a, a cartoonist? Oh my god, I have to tell a lister there. Uh, <laughs> these these questions are, are printed out, obviously. As is in all caps. Uh, and they they committed. So I mean, give yourselves a round of applause. Can I ask why as is kept? Um, why? Because I, I think I struggle to inflect unless I give myself... Unless I give myself some, you know, bumper lanes or something. <laughs> I would say the worst decision I had made as a cartoonist would be not taking myself seriously. You know, and that... That's that, a great answer. Yeah. And, and I try to impart my hard one wisdom. Uh, um, <laughs> I remember... Oh, God, yeah, I remember... You're taking yourself very seriously. Yeah, I remember, I know, very dramatically seriously. Uh, I remember last year, early last year, I was updating my comics resume because I was applying for some grant or something, and I was so pissed at myself at how much work it was finally dredging up all this stuff I'd done since 1991. It was hellish. It just went on and on and on. And I, and although in a way it was really kind of, I got really impressed with myself, like, wow, I really did do a lot of this. Oh, I had forgotten about this book or this thing that I was part of, blah, blah, blah. But... I'm just, I told, I tweeted out to the younger teens, take yourself seriously. Don't make yourself have to go through all your archive crap uh, for the last 25 years to put this together. Keep uh, totals of what you're doing, you know, keep a resume, you know, updated and, and really take yourself seriously. Because, you know, ultimately, if you don't take yourself seriously, you'll have a harder time making other people take you seriously. So, yeah, I think it was like in 2008. 2003 when I start taking myself more seriously, you know, and not thinking of it as a hobby. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's relatively late in the game. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I had some real... I mean, I would go back and forth, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hard knocks out there for cartoonists, trust me. <laughs> um, even, like, the really well-known, successful ones still have to deal with a lot of crap, you know, so... And question number nine... What work from another medium has influenced you the most? That is a very good question. And I'm torn between literature and music. Because um, I still ink, I blast music when I'm inking, you know. Like, and it really, I'm like a method actor. Like if I, if somehow it's about Morrissey or somehow it's about... <laughs> you know, African music or about 70s disco or whatever, what have you, I, I like to play that stuff, mm -hmm. you know. But then literature, I'm still a voracious reader, and I love words strung together like pearls, and yeah, it's somewhere between those two, it's, it's between those two, maybe they're equal. And, and like I said, I really like, earlier I really like to read interviews with writers and musicians, anybody from any art form, I just love 
I'm just all about the process, the creative process. You know, I'm still obsessed with Project Runway all these years. I still <laughs> love because I can't sew anything, but I love seeing how they put their outfits together, and yeah, it's fascinating to me. Well, let me ask you a tangential question about literature as an influence and what you do with literature as an influence. Last year, you published uh, the Shirley Jackson Project, uh, an anthology of comics inspired by the work of the writer Shirley Jackson. When you're putting together an anthology like that, how different for you is it compared to comics making in terms of starting with the component parts, starting with raw ideas, and building toward a, a kind of coherent whole? Um... Oh, yeah, can you say that again loud? <laughs> so we can, uh, one, now, you, oh, thank you. <laughs> I do hope the mic picked that up. Yeah. <laughs> well, with Shirley, with the Shirley thing, I have such a deep and abiding love of her work that was above and beyond everything else. And the thing that fueled me was people like Maggie Umber, who's sitting over there, and, and who's the, these amazing artists that are also really obsessed with their work. I mean, that just, it was just really creating, it was all about Shirley and doing justice to Shirley Jackson. Yeah, it, the comics weren't even the biggest part of it for me. It was literally just like trying to make something that she wouldn't hate where she's still alive and she saw it. Does that answer the question? Yeah. 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 You can move on to a question 10, if you like. Really drive it home with the longest question on the list. So apologies in advance. <laughs> Aliens have made contact with Earth, and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. You have been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? Well, first of all, I'd really like to thank everybody for selecting me <laughs> to introduce the aliens to comics. It's such an honor. <laughs> I'm not worthy. I think, honestly, it would be Charles Schultz. Because I think Charles Schultz, Peanuts, and it would be like 50s, and it would be like 60s era mm-hmm. Peanuts when it was really amazingly awesome. Um, because I feel like that aliens, if they were going to get into comics or get into what we're all about, um, that strip had simple, elegant, kind of sort of artwork, or like they used like very simple, easy to understand figures. You know, uh, there's not too much going on. Actually, Chris Ware would be really good in that way. And they're filled with so much humanity and pathos and humor that I think that would be like a really good stepping stone for these aliens to hopefully get into com- the comic art form. I think so. You know, it's, it's easy to sort of get caught up in waxing poetic about Schultz and Peanuts, but the work deserves it, I think. If you go back to those 50s and 60s strips, the preciseness with which he takes apart human emotion and and how dark they're willing to get. It's kind of amazing they were ever published. Yeah, I mean, there he was a huge influence on me because there was real depth in their writing, and he wasn't afraid to really limb despair at times. There were some of those things that were just brutal, you know, but it's also really, really funny. I mean, the book I would give them is The Peanuts Treasury. I think that's... That was a book uh, my brother and I had when we were kids, and that I still have a copy I found on, online of that exact volume. I think it's been reprinted, but, yeah, it's just slam dunk all the way and you know so yeah Charles Schultz that's that's the way to go alright well we can end on that thank you all again for coming